Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Well, welcome everybody to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, and we have uh, a very special guest with us today. His name is Brent Dusing. He is the founder and CEO of TruePlay, which is a, get this, faith-based video gaming company out of Austin, Texas. Brent, thanks for being with us today. Hey, great to be with you today, Jeff. Good to see you again. Now, Brent and I have been introduced by some friends in common in Austin, and uh, I've been to his office, but today we're coming separately. We're kind of over Zoom. I'm in Houston, and, and you're in Austin, but we've had the benefit of chatting before, and and the way you know we always think about this is just like we're having lunch and sharing our our conversation with some friends, and the and the way we always try to start, Brent, is just getting a little context uh, from you know where you grew up, what your family was like, maybe even a faith journey as a as a young person or a lack thereof. What was it like growing up? Sure, I, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, if you've ever had Andy's ice cream or you ever been to Bass Pro Shops, that's the headquarters of both of those places. Funny story, I actually had the same uh, history teacher as Brad Pitt. Uh, Brad, Brad Pitt's a, quite a bit older than I am, but we we had the same history teacher. He was an old old Scottish man who uh, unfortunately has since passed on. But he, at the height of kind of Brad Pitt's popularity in the '90s, my teacher stopped class and he lamented, "Well, why is Brad Pitt so popular? He was a very good history student. They didn't write very good very good very good history papers." And so, kind of goes on rambling about uh, you know the the French Revolution and. Uh, you know, the reign of terror, you know, and <laughs> he, anyway, so, so grew up in Springfield, Missouri and, you know, always, you know, I grew up going to a church, kind of grew up in the church, but it was kind of a church at the time where there were a lot of churches that I guess maybe still are, but they, they, they were kind of drifting away from biblical orthodoxy, you know, so, so kind of, you know, is the Bible really true? And it's kind of the deterioration of that kind of a thing. So I always grew up believing that God existed. To me, that was always obvious. If you, you know, look at a sunset, if you've ever, you know, fallen in love, or if you, you, you know, see a waterfall, the, the, think about the, the, the miracle of existence. To me, it was always obvious, but the things around is the Bible really 100% true? Was Jesus really the Son of God? All those kind of things were questions that I really hadn't resolved. I went to Harvard in the late 90s, and was very, I would say, unprepared for, I basically had a, the theological underpinnings of like having a butter knife in my hand and had atheists, you know, with machine guns. Yeah, good analogy. And, and it was not at all prepared for that. And so I didn't ever buy into kind of the atheistic, you know, completely secular humanist worldview, but I, cause, because I found there to be a lot of contradiction in the thought process. So for example, my, it's funny, so, so Jordan Peterson was there when I was there. He was, oh, yeah, yeah, very, very popular associate professor at Harvard. Because, you know, he was younger. He was probably in his 30s at the time. And of course, he spoke really well. People were super excited to try to get to his class. I didn't have him, but I did go see him speak once. So in my intro psychology class, I remember the professor who actually ran the whole department saying something like, well, you know, life is just merely, you know, a combination of nature and nurture. I'm like, well, what about free will? Well, no, you know, it's just, it's just all nature and nurture. I'm like, okay, so when you got your tenured professorship that's on your wall, that, that plaque in your office that says, 
I'm a tenured professor at Harvard. Did you just say, yeah, the carbon atoms just kind of floated up and conspired and stuck on the wall and randomly? No. You pointed at your chest and you said, look what I did. Look at how proud you were, right? So, so you, I, I would find that people were saying things that they didn't live out or believe at all. Another one, you know, well, you know, the only reason that, you know, love is just a false construct, you know, we, it's where by, you know, our, our genetics have, you know, we've evolved to biologically adapt so that if a child, one of our children die, we feel the pain because our genes aren't going to extend anymore. I'm like, that's, but if your kid got hit by a car, you wouldn't say that. There's right. no way, like, so in other words, you're going around teaching some of the brightest minds in the world all this kind of thing that you don't even believe yourself. You, you, yeah. don't, you don't believe two-thirds of the things that you're saying. You're just using it kind of as a crutch to live your life the way you want. So right. I had a really interesting experience in right after my sophomore year, I took a year to go to Johannesburg, South Africa. So this was 1998. Nelson Mandela was president. It was right, you know, four years post-apartheid ending. Fascinating time. And it was actually right when the HIV crisis, I don't know how well the audience is familiar with this, but, you know, AIDS popped up in America in the 80s, but when it really hit Africa hard was the 90s. And there's a lot of reasons for that I, I won't get into. But so I kind of, we kind of, I was kind of there on the ground floor. I was working with homeless people and refugees at this church and kind of seeing that happen and, you know, seeing the way the whole culture and the society was changing it was a fascinating time. And a long story short, which kind of gets into kind of where I am today, you know, I was 20 years old and I was asking myself, what am I going to do the rest of my life? And I'd been told things by people, you know, hey, you should go, you should run for office. Hey, you should, I was a pretty good writer. So, you know, thought about maybe being an author or a poet or something like that. But I also had an acumen for business. And I helped when I was there, I helped a ministry that was way in debt get back to the black through fundraising. And I helped start a ministry for Francophone refugees because in, you know, Central Africa, is essentially just this never-ending civil war. And so there were a lot of refugees from essentially the Congo that came to Johannesburg. And I can speak kind of, you know, proficient level French. So I was the only one who could kind of translate, help these people kind of get started. And so what I realized was, is I kind of finished my year there right before I went back to school that, you know, I could use my skills and gifts and business acumen to do good in the world. Now, that's obviously what your podcast is about. And that's, what I do today, but when you're 20 years old and you're sitting, you know, at a, at a, most universities in the country, and you're hearing things like capitalism's evil, making money's evil, business is evil. But wait, you just asked me to contribute to a 40 billion dollar endowment. And don't, don't worry about that. We need <laughs> where, that. where do you we think that, that came from? We're, yeah. well, we're communists, but we need our endowment. <laughs> uh, so, so that that was a, a real perspective change for me. Yeah. Right, and and that's kind of a little bit of of how God kind of started that journey. Where, where now was this a study abroad thing, or did you take no, a year off during school? Not at all. I took a year off. So what's really cool is at least I, I don't know if they still do, but at the time, Harvard had this policy where you can leave and come back, and they'll still have a place for you. So like, Bill Gates could just go back; he wouldn't have to reapply. He oh. would just walk right back in, you know. Oh, wow. And so that's the way that. That's kind of the way that it's done. And yeah. so they just said, no, you, you know, go ahead. We'll have housing for you when you come back. I really needed, you know, now I realize, of course, God was really calling me not only to learn that lesson and kind of get direction for my life, but also it's funny. It's where I met my, I met my wife two years later. I went back to college, finished my last two years. Then I took a kind of a summer trip, you know, before the, your real life starts. Yeah. And your job. So that summer trip, the second time I met my wife. So, you know, you know, your life only makes sense in, in the rearview mirror, right? right? Somebody, I've got who said that. 
but it's true. You know, at the time, I just felt like I was called to this, like it was something I needed to do. I just felt this really deep conviction. And now I realized it was kind of, you know, meeting my wife and also getting kind of an internal sense of purpose for, you know, what God had for me. I love that. That's a great setup. And so uh, I was thinking of saying that uh, clearly you weren't a poet because you probably wouldn't be on this podcast now. <laughs> but, you know, maybe maybe uh, uh, maybe you would have been the exception of the the wildly successful poet could bring that back. But well, there, there aren't any more successful poets. Right. <laughs> poets are rappers, right? It's well, good point. Lost, uh, lost art form besides in music. Good point. So, OK, now where does the so you ended up studying economics, right? It, 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 instead of uh, maybe English or, or writing or one of those kind of things. And so what was the first job out of school? So I worked at a venture firm called Menlo Ventures, where uh, it's, on, it's on the West Coast. It's one of the really most established venture funds in the world. And my job was to bring companies in for the firm to invest in and to do the diligence, you know, be part of the diligence team. And it was crazy. I mean, my first job started September the 4th, 2001. Wow. Yeah. So, right, seven days later, September 11th happens. And the, the era was, it, it, for those who are listening or old enough to remember, the end of the dot-com era. So that I think the NASDAQ peaked in March of 2000. Yep. It was a slow decline to 2001. And if you look at the stock market charts when September 11th happened, it was this cliff dot. And then all the way through the end of 01, really until the spring of 2003, the market was really on a bottom. And so... Now, obviously, nobody likes going through that, but what was great to start your career in that time at a venture and established firm was I learned the specifics and the best principles on how to invest in companies. You know, you at a time when things get hot, like in the 90s or when things were kind of hot uh, in two, you know, 2021 or maybe 10 years ago or so. Uh, the sometimes things get done, you know, really foolish decisions get made. It's like the crypto bubble, right? You know, like like the FTX scandal and so much money came in basically just on hype and noise and nobody doing their work. You know, that tends to happen in really peak times of, of bubbles. And that certainly happened in the late 90s. A lot of people remember that. And so when you learn how to invest in a downturn, you learn principles you can take with you no matter what the marketing conditions are. That was, that was a really uh, good experience. And you, and you stayed there for how long? Three and a half years. I mean, that's pretty long through that. I mean, you got to see most of that cycle. I mean, it was just yes. kind of still, I mean, it was bouncing around in that period, but then, well, you know, kind of solved it down. You know, the, the market picked up a bit in 03, but you know, what changed everything was the Google IPO in 2004, or, uh, oh yeah, August 2004. And that was a watershed of, you know, the Silicon Valley's back. And I don't think a lot of people had kind of realized the rapid financial success that Google had had. And so that kind of led to quite a bit of growth and, and through the next cycle, up cycle, until, of course, the financial crisis in 2008. And, and okay, so, so you spend three years there, and then uh, you kind of get into the industry, if you will, right? So, that, by the way, that's a pretty big job right out of school, even though you went to a great school. You know, our last guest on the podcast was talking about, he was an investment banker for 17 years and how, you know, many kids today coming out of college, you know, you got to get an MBA and then go do the investment banking job for three to five years and then get into venture cap. So that, that was a, that was a pretty big job right out of school, wasn't it? 
It was. I, w- I was pretty fortunate, you know, and really knew what I wanted to do. Okay. I, th- you know, th- there are some firms that have, you know, venture programs that hire people right out of school. Yeah. And I just, you know, I it was really fortunate to do that, and and it was a great place to start. And well, you learned a lot early. So I mean, that was almost your graduate school was. Yeah. I fire in the uh, kind of the coming off the peak of the dot com crash. So. And then you've really spent the rest of your career kind of, uh, you know, in what you would have called a portfolio company as, an, yeah, portfolio, yeah. as a yeah. uh, private equity guy. That's right? what so, you're on. I think when you're, when you're an entrepreneur, you're always all in. So you don't have a portfolio. You just have one set of poker chips that are in the middle. Right, right. But, but you were the portfolio company probably of other PE people. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, so how did that transition happen? Yeah, so what happened was, I guess at the end of, let me just think about the time frame. Yeah, at the end of, at the, around 2004, I started thinking about becoming an entrepreneur, starting a business. And I knew a guy who was a brilliant, still is brilliant man, who was working on the Mars rover mission. He had, was programming a lot of the software that was used to kind of control and direct it. A uh, brilliant guy out of Carnegie Mellon. And he, we had a very, very close mutual friend who introduced us. And so uh, he also had the itch to be an entrepreneur. And so in 2004, we, we realized, okay, cell phones are everywhere. Everybody's got a mobile phone. Now, this is before the iPhone. The iPhone came out in 2007, but everyone had the Motorola Razor, if you remember that, or yep. Blackberry, or yep. Nokia was still a huge thing. Yep. Uh, Microsoft was really the first one to the smartphone market. And so we, I realized wherever there's going to be a screen, there's going to be an ad. Now, and what was amazing, now, was, what was also the other observation, I guess I would say, is that Wherever the size of the screen decreases, the, your willingness, your proclivity to click on an ad declines. In other words, you'll get there early to watch previews at a movie theater. You will tolerate ads on your TV, but you will try to avoid ads on your computer screen. So we figure, well, if they're on your phone, they're going to be even less likely to look at them, but there will be some kind of advertising play. And so, and of course, like, like I think a lot of people who start companies, we were told things like, oh, you know, Nobody will ever click on ads on your phone. I don't, you know, I don't need that. I don't want an ad on my phone. You know, how many ads did you see today when you were reading the news? <laughs> phone. Right. Um, what we built was a company that built coupons on your phone. So, you know, the way we thought about it was, excuse me, the way we thought about it was wherever there, you look at when people have a desire to consume an advertisement, right? One of the rare forms of kind of advertising that sought out are discounts, so discounts, deals, coupons. And so we built a company called Cellfire, where we ran and negotiated, you know, with every single Kroger in the nation and all their affiliates and all the Safeways. So I know you're in Houston, so you've got, I think you got Randall's. Oh, yeah. So all of their affiliates and a few other grocery chains as well. And our, so the, the partners were people like, or the customers rather, were people like General Mills and Kraft and some of the consumer packaged goods companies that we got to pay us to run their coupons through the phone. And so we actually, the first time that a coupon, sorry, that a mobile phone was plugged into a point of sale system in America, we did that. We did that at scale with Kroger. So that was pretty cool, but it was, it was two and a half years before the iPhone was invented and three and a half years before the app store. So we were doing all these things where, you know, downloading on the handset and all that kind of stuff. Well, What's amazing, if, if I've got my timeline correct, you were at that business, Cellfire, is that the name? Yes. 
from 2005 to 2009. And so not only was the iPhone created in 07, but 2008 happened. And we were just talking about the downturn of tech in 2000 to 2002. You survive another one. That couldn't have been easy. Yeah, I remember you know, it was funny because you know, when you're out in Silicon Valley and you're focused on doing deals with wireless carriers and grocery companies, zoo packs, goods companies, you don't think a lot about Wall Street. Yeah. And I remember every now and then bankers would come see us. And that, that's just kind of part of the standard process when right. you're running a venture back company. They just come and check in and they want to build a relationship. And that, that's all fine. So I remember these guys coming in our office. And I, I never forget what the banker said. He says, you know, the last time this happened, meaning the 2001 crisis, right. sitting in 2008, you know, Silicon Valley was a problem. He says, now we're the problem. We're oh, the reason oh. that this has happened. And so... You know, look, there's so much opacity to what banks hold. And we just saw that with the Silicon Valley yeah. crisis. I mean, after it happened, so many people rush out and say, oh, yeah, I knew this was going to... No, they didn't. <laughs> right. If you don't have visibility into what banks hold, and nobody knew that in 2008, or very few people did. I guess a couple people... Uh, very know, few. Yeah, very few. But, you know, the, the guy who was profiled in Michael Lewis's book, The Big Short, yeah. Buffett had also talked a little bit about derivatives as a contagion, but most people didn't know or care. And so, you know, it was tough. I mean, we certainly had to do employee cuts. You know, that, that's usually what happens, unfortunately, you know, in venture-backed companies is you, you have these big financial, you know, shocks. And usually the, the venture guys come and say, you know, you got to cut back because funding's going to be harder and all those things. And so we certainly had to do that. And, and you know, look, when you run a business, it's never, you know, I don't really have a problem letting people go who aren't performing or delivering but it's really hard when you have to do layoffs when you're letting good people go. And that's something that I don't think, I don't think anybody who runs a business enjoys, but it's, it was certainly something we had to do in the 08 timeframe. And so, but you did manage to get through that and have an exit, right? Yes. We wound up selling to Catalina Marketing for over a hundred million bucks. So it was a pretty nice deal. So it worked out. Worked out. Okay. So now you take a few months off. Uh, what do you what are you thinking then? Are you just like, so yeah? Here's what happened? So here's the real story. So I used to have people over for like a barbecue or get together at my house, and had some two really close friends. Oh, so, so I guess I should preface this with: I grew up playing a lot of board games and video games. And the Nintendo Entertainment System came out in 1986 when I was eight, and it was you know for those who are listening, if you're you know late Gen X. You, you'll agree with me, the Nintendo was to video games what Star Wars was to movies. Sure. That's a great analogy because I'm, I'm right under the baby boomer. I'm the late Gen X, and it was Atari when I was growing up, which it was better than Pong, but Nintendo was a whole different ballgame. Nintendo was a completely different thing. It just, just like if you've ever seen Star Wars, you know, A New Hope, the 1977 movie. Yeah. That is so much different and, frankly, honestly, better than any science fiction movie that had been made before that. You know, That's every so other true. science fiction movie looked like it got shot in somebody's office. It's exactly right. I remember it's, being at the theater, seeing it, going, what in the world? This is amazing. I'm transported. Right. That's the <laughs> thing. You were transported. And, and, you know, Steven Spielberg goes, That's the best movie that was ever made. He walked out of the theater saying that. Wow. So Nintendo, the Nintendo was to video games because it was full color, it was immersive. 
and you you have to give credit to Shigeru Miyamoto. I don't know if you know who that is, but he's no. he's he and Michael Jordan are probably better at their jobs than maybe any other employees were ever better at their jobs. I mean, so Shigeru Miyamoto is the greatest video game designer in the history of human civilization. He did, and for those who don't know, he did Donkey Kong, he did Super Mario, Mario oh, wow. World, all the Zeldas. He invented the the Wii, those you know the remote the remote oh, yeah. Wii's from the uh, 2006. I believe he did Metroid. And I know I'm forgetting quite a few other things wow. too. You guys can light me up in the comments about other great <laughs> things he did. But he, he's a he's a brilliant man. Just one of those one of those few people like a Steve Jobs where they just kind of know exactly what to build. See, the rest of us have to test and iterate and test and iterate. But there are these rare people like Miyamoto and Jobs who they just have this preternatural gift to really be able to escape where the puck is going. And so yeah. and when the Nintendo came out. It, it made gaming part of the cultural conversation for my generation and yeah. everybody younger. Yeah. And so I grew up playing video games, you know, loved, fell in love with the Zelda series, enjoyed the Mario stuff, played, played a lot of sports and combat games and stuff. But I also really loved board games. I used to make board games when I was a little kid, like at elementary school and then junior high. And my friends would actually come over asking to play those games. Wow. So I knew that, yeah, so I knew that, I, you know, I kind of, you had a little talent in that area, an interest for sure. An interest. And the other thing I did, I was mentioning writing. You know, I used to write a, right. lot, a lot of creative writing as a kid. So, so fast forward back to my faith journey in 2000. So I became a Christian. We kind of skipped over this in the 2003, 2004 timeframe. And the thing that really impacted me, well, there were, there were three things, but one of them was the Passion of the Christ. You guys are, you know, if you haven't seen it, stop you and go see it tonight. Yeah. Most of you listening to it probably have the Mel Gibson movie from 2004. Not only did it make a really big personal impact on me, because, you know, when you grow up in Christendom, and, and please, you know, hear, hear me out, you, you kind of see the cross as a general part of the cultural conversation. It, it almost becomes a, almost like a cultural legend or a cultural fable. So, right, so, so you know, you, you go to a, a regular church in America, and you see a cross, and you come in on Sunday for an hour, and you go away. It just means a symbol of where you're going, right? You see the Passion of the Christ movie, and you see the way things really went. You're like, oh, that was war. And that was for me, and I was the one at fault. And so that, that had a deep impact on me. The wow. other thing was, it really became our guidepost. We put our values up on our website for everything that we do here at True Play, which is, you know, if you think, why did that movie succeed? Well, it was highly engaging. I'm not going to say it was fun. It certainly wasn't fun to watch, but it's engrossing, right? You, you're riveted to the movie, even though you know exactly what's going to happen. There's no plot twist. There's no surprise ending, right? You know exactly how it's going to go, but you're really, you know, you really get immersed because the acting is so good, the cinematography, the music. You know, Mel Gibson is, is again, one of those truly, truly, truly gifted directors. Um, so then... Uh, the other thing he did was though it, it held to what I call biblical authenticity, right? Sure, he took some creative license with this scene and that scene, but the thrust of the story, the the point of what was going on, most of the action was adherent to the biblical narrative. Sounds like it kind of reignited your faith and kind of made it real and a little more personal. Is that made, fair? Made it real and personal. I would say I was already on a journey, and right. this is kind of a longer part of the discussion, but I'd gone to a small Bible church in Mountain View, California, and met a pastor who I started asking a lot of questions to, and he's very patient answering my questions. So I was on a journey. I was starting to read the Bible. So 
it wasn't like I just hit it cold, but it was like the nail, like the final nail. And yeah, no, I, it it makes sense. It sort of all came together for you. Yeah. Uh, and now this is while you're running Cellfire, the company we were talking about yeah, earlier. It was actually while I was at the venture firm. It was oh, really still early in my career. Yeah. Okay. And and so that seed is kind of planted. So it's not like you already had true play and you just started slapping the values up on the wall. This seed <laughs> was germinating. And you go through the venture firm, you go through Cellfire, you have the exit. Now there's a move in here somewhere. So you're a Midwest kid, goes to Boston, over to San Francisco, and how do you land in Austin? Oh, okay. So that that move was uh 2015. So we we left uh, we left California, moved to Texas for the same reasons most people. Okay, but now you're a little earlier than most. But 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 you already had the company going. So where, where is this video? Game well, true. Yeah. So let me let me get back to the, the video game yeah. story. So what had happened was I used to have these barbecues, have these friends over to my place, and I had I had seen you. Know, this is this is when Facebook was eating the world. They were taking over the. Yeah. It was 2008 2009 time frame. And I had some friends, and there were games that were starting to come out, games like a Farmville, and people probably remember games like that. There was a company called Slide, and and I said, yeah, you know, I said to my friends, yeah, I, I know that that those guys are, you know, you know, having a lot of people play their games, but they're not making any money because, see, they were all free games, and previously, games that were made for free that just pumped ads tended not to perform well at all. They said, no, they're doing incredibly well financially because they're using in-app purchases. So there was, had been this big ground shift in gaming in the mid-2000s where women started playing a lot of games. So games like Solitaire, Bejeweled Blitz, on a site called Pogo.com. And in, in Japan, they had perfected the art of microtransactions, pay, paying a dollar, paying $2, paying $5 for extra things inside the game. And that's how Farmville, those things were monetizing. And so you know, it was harder to tell a biblical narrative and a biblical story with a Super Nintendo or an Xbox. But when you could play a game on the web, when the gameplay styles had changed. So, you know, gaming gaming was primarily testosterone driven, right? Fighting, shooting, racing, yeah, saving the, the adventure, you know, saving the princess in the castle. What had changed was there were a lot of games that were around questing, around building, around, you know, you know building a farm, a city, a civilization. And so because that had shifted, there was now an opportunity to tell a biblical narrative through video game styles of play that people liked. And so anyway, so Lightside, we started that in 2010. Yeah. And we built explicitly biblical games, and we kind of used similar principles to what I observed in the passion of the Christ film, meaning it's got to be high quality, it's got to be engaging, but it's also got to espouse biblical truth. And so we, we had a good run. You know, we had over 7 million people play our games. We had our core audience play our, uh, our Journey of Jesus game for over nine years. We had a lot of, uh, you know, retention engagement statistics. And we also had, we partnered with the Billy Graham Association and had over 25,000 people come to Christ. Wow. Uh, so that was pretty exciting. Well, and, and this is something that you and I were talking about before we started recording, which I think is so interesting and really the purpose of this podcast, which is God uses everybody so uniquely in their business. Some people, you know, like Alan Barnhart, to uh, lift heavy things, as he likes to say, okay? Maybe the faith isn't explicit. Now, you can do that. You can operate a crane to the glory 
of God, okay? Uh, and you can treat your employees, though, in all kinds of businesses in, in certain ways. One of the things I think is so interesting about your business is the content itself is a ministry. Now, I, I know, and we can get into some of this if you like, about the way you treat your employees and all of those things. Luckily, I've gotten to meet some of them, and I can tell you've built a great culture there or, or God has through you by attracting people to this kind of a movement. But I think that's so interesting. Can you talk a little more about what is it about the journey you take people through in the game? Yeah. How do you imbue that w- with a faith journey? So at TruePlay, which, which is a new company, it's a separate company than, than Lightside. With TruePlay, we just started back in, really we started going in 2020. So TruePlay is a subscription service. We're actually uh, about to launch it in the third quarter. And it's, it's a, an app that's an entertainment platform for families but that's explicitly you know Christian content that's really high quality. So it's mostly video games, but we've got digital comics. We've got uh, videos. We've got a lot of exciting stuff. And so you know what TruePlay is about is everything we do has got to be fun. It's got to be high quality. It's got to be beautiful, but it's also got to contain God's truth. So some of our content are games that are explicitly telling biblical stories. Some of our content is content, a new universe we've created called the Rimverse. If you go to our website, you'll see a little girl who's a bunny rabbit wearing a tiger costume uh, or a skunk, a boy who's a skunk that wears a crocodile robot outfit that he built himself. Now, clearly, that's not in the Bible, but it's, it's a world where, you know, just like our world, where God is real and the Bible's true, but there's real evil. And each of the characters has their own personalities, their own journey. They, they're, it's what you're told in games, in said, digital comics, in different animations, and God's a big part of it. Some of our characters are strong believers, some are not. Some of them God's working on. Uh, I guess God's working on everybody, but there's, but there's also villains who are, who are trying to control and manipulate and you know, destroy certain things. And so the, the characters pray, there's scripture woven in, and there's also there's real heart issues that we deal with. As, as just one example, one of our characters' name is Ava, and her parents, she's about nine years old, and her parents are divorced, and she's a lynx. And most of our characters wear costumes of other animals to look more fierce and more aggressive so they get respect. She actually wears a fawn costume, so she appears more docile because she's getting bullied at school. And her parents are divorced, and you know, a lot of times when you grow up in a divorced household, you're told just go along with it, just deal with it, it doesn't really matter what you think. And she's having a hard time with all of that. So in her game and her journey, her quest, she has to learn your identity is not who people tell you you are. Your identity is who God says you are. And that's a message we think is really important for kids. This is, this is so fascinating. I mean, obviously, I am not in your uh, industry, but, you know, e- even my kids kind of grew up with the, you know, the questing and building kind of games, even with daughters going through those kind of things. And I remember watching them play these things. I'm going, this is kind of scarily like real life. So this stuff, like, I, I can see how you could imbue it with that. And I, and I just love that theme of, like, the characters who are made up kind of cartoon characters are also wearing masks. Yes, yes. It's says sort of cope with the things that are, that they're being subjected to. And we know that there's only one real place of joy and strength. And so they all have to find that place in their journey. That's so, That's right. That's that is right. so cool. So, so just, okay. For the business people who are trying to follow maybe the timeline here, like me. So light side, 
technically got acquired by TruePlay. Is that right? That's right. Correct. Okay. So that that's sort of the acquisition that happens. You move to Austin, and uh, it, it, and so that that's kind of where TruePlay uh, is, is yeah. born. So TruePlay was already happening, and and it. Yeah, I start. I basically started TruePlay. You know, at Lightside, we were building one game at a time. Okay. TruePlay is we're building one app with a whole bunch of content in, it. and actually we're we're partnering with uh with other organizations as well, uh, and putting their content on our platform too. Everything you know, like I said, everything's got everything's got to be got to be faith based Christian, but also high quality. Uh, so most of the content we build, but we do partner with other people. Um, but, but really the reason I started True Play was I was about to turn 40. This is after we'd moved to Austin. And I was asking myself, well, what am I going to do the rest of my life? And I was bothered by what I was observing. You know, anxiety, suicide, and depression rates are all-time highest for kids. And it exactly, if you look at the, the charts, the trajectory exactly matches the rise of social media on smartphones. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So for the first time in your and my life, less than half of Americans go to church. The, another stat, 62% of Americans over 40 believe in God, but only 32% of kids. And you ask yourself, well, why is that? Well, is it because children discovered some brand new scientific discovery that proves God doesn't exist? No, that's not true. I just talked to God this morning, as did a lot of people. He, he's alive and well. Yeah. The difference is they're on screens 50 hours a week. They're at church 30 minutes a week. And most of the content on the screen for 50 hours a week is, you know, social media, video games, movies, music, you know, other content that does not mention God anywhere. And in many cases is antithetical yeah. to what God has for their life. And so, so much of the anxiety, suicide, depression, it's all, you know, sexual content, you know, the average male is supposed to porn when he's 11, mm. you know, hyper violent, gruesome, you know, you know, dark, spiritually dark stuff, you know, drug dealing, you know, you, there's a lot of games you can download on the app store uh, and sell drugs, it, you know, virtual, you know, virtual selling drugs, you know, in a, in a game. Uh, you know, it's and funny, so, I, don't, I don't even think I thought about that. I, I'm thinking about uh, coming home from school as a kid, you know, like a 12-year-old kid and just playing in the neighborhood, right? And we always, people in my generation bemoan the fact that our kids don't get to do that anymore and we have to sign them up for a thousand things, which is, I guess, better. But they're going to spend, I mean, I've seen the stats. What the, how many hours a day, the average teenager? They're, they're on, it's about seven hours a day. I mean, seven hours. Can you imagine? So just that, I'm, I'm just thinking of just the inputs, that, that you paint a really clear picture of the inputs and, and then the outcome. I mean, it's a logical outcome of what the inputs are. So it sounds like uh, your mission is to kind of try to, level the playing field here a little bit well here's here's kind of what we realized you know there's all this toxic content and when i was a kid you know we there was more that's when things shifted there was starting to be more video game playing yes always playing outside of the we probably yeah. played outside more than more than a lot of kids now but but at still though you know to get there were no horribly you know awful nintendo no. art to buy explicit music or an R-rated movie, you had to show an ID at the store, right? There was no internet, there was no mobile phone. So the ability to get content in seconds that's highly toxic and dangerous for mental health and your soul is almost instant. And so what I realized was, look, there's a lot of people out there who are concerned about their children's 
mental health, who are concerned about their children's future and their, fu- their children's soul. And yet, if you want your child to do something that espouses your values, it grows their relationship with God, and something they actually want to do, there's hardly any choices because, unfortunately, the content out there, you know, for kids is, that's Christian isn't that high, you know, production value, right? It's just not. And so they're not interested, they're not engaged, it doesn't match the kind of content that they're used to doing uh, on the secular side. And so we, we realize, look, there's got to be, we've got, we're all, most people who work here, if you talk to them, you know, they're all people from industry, you know, from phenomenal, you know, tech companies, you know, in fact, my head of engineering built the algorithm at Amazon that says split your order into multiple packages. This one will get here faster. My head of product was, uh, he ran the Farmville franchise at Zynga for a while. I mean, so it's a very, and just countless other highly, highly talented people, but they're all here for the mission and, and they're all parents. And they're like, look, we have to have a different outcome for our children. Here's a question to ask yourself. There's a lot of wonderful organizations out in the world that serve children in need overseas, Compassion International, Samaritan's Purse, World Vision. Those are wonderful organizations. They are. They do tremendous work. But can you name an organization in America that serves the needs of children in America at scale? Great point. And and you know, the thing that I love about it, Brent, is that you're using, you're not trying to drive them back to something that's not going to happen, a behavior that is in a bygone era. You're using, which is, I think, glorifying to God, you're using the pipes that are already built, okay? They can be used for positive things or for negative things. Mostly, this is being used for negative things. You're just trying to use the same pipes to deliver positivity, which I think that's, you have to do it that way. That's why you're reaching so many people. That's right. I mean, you know, I grew up in the 80s hearing Christian leaders who I respected Saying things like, well, you know, don't go to that movie, don't listen right. to music, don't watch that TV show. And look, I get it, yeah. but you've got to give me something to do because kids today, or they're not going to- You've got to replace the behavior. Right. They're going, okay, right. with something that they want to do. Something they want to do. And, you know, every, every medium can be used for good or bad. I mean, look, exactly. look you, could, you could read the Bible or you could go read a pornographic magazine. You know, you can go movies, you can watch, or, you know, TV shows, you can watch The Chosen- or you can go watch, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, you you, right. you have a, you know, it's not about what the media. Not the media. It's about right. the message and the content. Exactly. And, you know, there's a lot of structural reasons why there hasn't been so much in the video gaming space, uh, but that's changing. And the other thing is, it's also changing in movies and films. I mean, look at how well The Chosen's done. Look at the g yeah. right? Four million tickets in a month. Uh, I just saw the movie Nefarious, which, which I, by the way, highly recommend if you're listening, made by Christians. Have you seen this? Have you seen the No, I haven't seen it yet. Do you know about it? No. Okay, so Nefarious is made by very sincere Christians. They made the unplanned movie, and it's about, but it's very different than any Christian movie you've seen. It's about a man who's on death row who says that he's possessed, and there's an atheist psychologist who has to go interview him to decide if he's fit for execution or if he's clinically insane. And so they have this, it's kind of like a combination of the screw tape letters and Silence of the Lambs. Wow. It's, it's, it's a fascinating, very bold, uh, very bold approach to a very interesting topic and certainly recommend it. Hey, we'll put a, your website in the show notes, but uh, as you're releasing this, where, where can people find the content and when you reference it, something's coming out, do you, would you like to 
say what that yeah, is. Yeah, please. So, so uh, you know, please check it out. Trueplaygames.com, T-R-U-P-L-A-Y, uh, is a subscription service. We're selling pre-orders starting in May, and uh, you can you can jump on board and uh, would love to have, you know, it's really going to take a movement of people yeah. to see this become a reality. There's so many parents who are tired of toxic content being thrust on their kids. We've got to have great, excellent, world-class content. And, we, and we've, we've built dozens and dozens and dozens of hours of content in the platform. We're adding new stuff all the time. We have some really exciting partnerships and people who are supporting us um, that we're really excited to kind of show. We're, we're partnering with the Billy Graham Association again. Candace Cameron's endorsed us. Quite a few other groups that, um, that we're partnering with as well. And so we're just, we're really excited about kind of how God's moving and, and I think things are going to change. Things seem really dark right now in our culture, but I think my message to people is there's hope. God's not done. There's a lot of people God's using to see his hand move and see things change for the better, particularly for all of our children. I love it. Well, you know, we always like to wrap it up uh, with just a practical tip. There's, there's probably somebody maybe a little behind you in this journey who wants to think about how to use their, the business platform God's given them uh, in a more of a glorifying way. And in just a simple, practical step, they're like, man, I can't maybe start, I, I can't do the ministry maybe directly in the business I have. But, but in terms of maybe kind of integrating your faith with, uh, with your business or just thinking about your business as a platform for helping others, what's just some little practical tip you might leave with some other you know, I would, would say to people a couple things, you know, they're, they're having prayer chaplains is something that, you know, you can do. There's, there's Prayer Chaplains of America. There's, there's other organizations that uh, have, have very, very successful ministries that, that we employ chaplains, and people really appreciate that. I know our employees really appreciate that. Mm. The other thing I'll give you, too, the other one is what's called being a public benefit corp. So it's interesting, and not everybody knows about this. So we're for-profit, as I'm sure most of your listeners run for-profit. But you can file, there's, there's a legal designation in 34 states, including Texas and California, and, and of course, many others, where you say, yes, we are a for-profit, but we provide a public benefit. So you can be a public benefit for the environment, for social, for educational, or for religious purposes. So what that allows, so for example, Patagonia is- Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I think that's what Patagonia did. Yeah, yeah. Ben and Jerry's did that for- Okay. Lemonade, it's an AI tech company did that. We did it, obviously, we chose the religious path. And so- for, for us, that allows us to be able to message very clearly, here's what we do, here's what we stand for. We're going to talk about you know, these kind of things in the office because this is the content that we make, right? And so it, you know, I would really encourage you uh, as a business owner to take a look at that. Uh, it was passed by Governor Abbott maybe around 10 years ago in Texas, I'm sure, if you're listening in other states, you, you can see for yourself. But uh, certainly something I'd, I'd definitely encourage uh, everyone who's a believer out there to to do. Well, listen, those are great tips, and and thank you so much for, frankly, sharing your story today. But but even more so, just following in obedience for uh, for the path God has given you. It is such a necessary. I I can already hear the cacophony of people listening, going Amen to this uh, project that you have, and so uh, we'll look forward to seeing how it works out and uh, have you on again to, to hear the after story of uh, all the lives uh, changed for the better. Thanks so much More for being with us, Thank friend. you, Jeff. Appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. We'll talk to you next week. 
Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.